This is episode 165 with Steph Lowe. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. Legends, welcome. Welcome back to the show or welcome to the show if this is your first episode. I trust that you are all well and thriving wherever you are in the world listening to this episode. As you know, for those who are long-time listeners, for those of you who know me or listen to me regularly, you would know that I believe your health is your wealth. And when I talk about health, I'm referring to your physical, mental and emotional health and of course your spiritual health. I'm super intrigued when we look at health from all different dynamics. I'm super intrigued about nutrition and how much we as humans have an opportunity to optimize our health and influence our overall experience of life, either positively or negatively, with our nutritional choices. I've explored it a lot. I'm a well-being educator and I bring this knowledge into my workshops, my coaching and my online programs and I have invested a lot of money, time and resources into my health. I highly value it. I believe your health is your wealth. Hence why I'm pumped to have Steph Lowe on the show today. Steph is the natural nutritionist. That's her business name and her Instagram handle. Steph has a passion for spreading a positive message about real food and the incredible effect it has on health, fertility and performance. She has an undergraduate degree in sports and exercise science and a postgraduate degree in human nutrition. And she launched her company, The Natural Nutritionist, in 2011 and is on a mission to inspire others to make health a priority in their lives. Steph has been practicing as an LCHF nutritionist since 2011 and has seen thousands of lives changed around the globe from adopting this way of life. She says, we only need to look around our own neighborhood to realize that chronic diseases such as obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer are reaching epidemic proportions. And to to the science that proves how much our modern day dietary guidelines are to blame. So LCHF for Steph is lower carbohydrate, healthier fats, not necessarily low carb, high fat. So she says, lower carbohydrate healthier fats. She explains that as an LCHF nutritionist, she says, I feel it's important to discuss that LCHF is not a diet. It's a lifestyle. It's about reconnecting to food as it once was before the influence of government, large-scale agriculture, and quote-unquote big food. It's about taking control of your health and unlocking your inbuilt potential to supercharge your metabolism, burn fat, and extend your longevity. LCHF should first and foremost be about health with positive flow-on effects including satiety, 
mood, stability, appetite control, mental clarity, improved inflammation markers, and weight loss. So that's what LCHF is all about when we talk about that in this episode. Now, if you're keen to hear more from other natural nutritional and functional medicine experts, please let me know because like I said, this is a real passion area of mine. I know it's very confusing area and and I'd love to be able to simplify it as much as possible for you all uh, by getting these experts on. And like I said, I'm addicted to this space and I love deepening my own learnings on the show too. In this episode with Steph, we discuss the really important difference between nutritionists and dietitians and natural nutrition. We discuss intermittent fasting, especially for women, and what to be aware of and how to implement it safely and why this is important for men to understand. We talk about the effects of too much protein in our diets, which is for the majority of people in the Western world. Supplements, which is we discuss which ones we should all be considering and why not all supplements are equal. Calcium and the dairy myth. We discuss parenting and toddlers. And at the end of this episode, we also talk about the possible health implications of the COVID-19 vaccinations. So Steph does a lot of research in this area and therefore her perspective is not judgmental and very well respected by many health experts. Okay, now let's hear from the legend herself, the natural nutritionist, Steph Lowe. Steph? I want to start this chat off by saying that uh, I follow you on Instagram and one of the best Instagram posts I've seen you do, it said, I have a question about toddlers and my question is, what the fuck? (laughs) 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 Hashtag asking for a friend. (laughs) I know, right? You and I have similar timelines with our entry into parenthood. But equally, some of the comments were hilarious because Grace was coming up to two when I posted that, but a lot of the comments were, wait until you get a three-nager. You don't (laughs) know what you're in for. (laughs) Well, you and I can both sit back now and just wait and uh, wait naively. (laughs) I liked one of the... One of the comments under it that I thought was a classic was, yeah, they say having a two or three-year-old is like turning on the blender with the lid off. Oh, it's that, that was the hands down most hilarious comment because it really does, you have moments where you feel like you're alone even though you're not, but when you have like a bit of a community discussion around how we're all feeling about kids of a certain age, it really brings you together, but it makes you realize you're just one of many going through the similar absolutely, journey. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We call our little Ollie the hurricane. He's usually a bundle of energy and happiness and joy of a hurricane, but he's still a hurricane. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have nerves about um, a boy. I don't know what um, my little bun in the oven is, but I'm nervous about a boy because I hear that at that age, it's very intense, whereas Gracie's, yeah, a bit more placid and um, a bit more of a, yeah, a girl at that age, I think. <laughs> and, and we've got one of each. So Ollie's almost two and our beautiful little Indy was just born a couple of months ago. So I'm feeling it. It's a boy for you. <laughs> I, I agree, actually. I, okay. I am 99% sure it's a boy. I, okay. I actually am, but I've had um, perhaps two people disagree, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, all the best for that. Maybe we can connect when uh, the the three-nager 
period of our life is over. <laughs> Just some group venting that'll feel yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> now, Steph, you are a natural nutritionist. And for everyone listening, I'd like you to inform us, what's the difference between a natural nutritionist and, I don't know, let's say a non-natural nutritionist? <laughs> <laughs> well, I the name actually came about as it's more of a comparison between nutritionists and dietitians, actually. There's um, obviously if you were to consider going to see a professional to talk about your food or weight loss or sports performance or fertility, you could choose one or the other essentially. And with, unfortunately with, at least in Australia and other Western countries, dietitians sit underneath the Dietetics Association of Australia or wherever they are, and um, they are bound by government guidelines. So they're bound by our food pyramid and we often see advice that perhaps not everyone agrees with around the consumption of X number of serves of whole grains per day or, you know, dairy for calcium or that saturated fats cause heart disease, like lots of um, conversations within the nutrition space that are definitely no longer supported by high-level evidence but unfortunately are taking a long time to be replaced. And so when I first started, I just saw this huge gap between the the evidence that we had that was in 2011 and what was still being delivered to to customers and to consumers. So I wanted to have that clarification that we were talking a lot more about whole foods and and certainly that we're not having to follow the food pyramid and some of those outdated guidelines. And, you know, I've never regretted that decision because even now, (laughs) um, yeah, I guess I have a lot more freedom with how I prescribe and it allows me to be a lot more personalised depending on the client and their goals and many other factors like testing that we would do in clinic as well. So I, I love that. The foundation has to be whole foods. I think almost everyone can agree on that. Do you find that there's other dietitians then that start to change their beliefs through their career do they shift away from being a dietitian and not bound to those, I don't know, limited and outdated beliefs and food pyramids and things like that. And they shift across to either functional medicine or nutritionist titles so they can go in the natural kind of way like you have. A hundred percent. It's happened many times where let's say, especially in the space that I do, because I, I look at real food, but certainly for, some of my clients, it ends up being more LCHF, which stands for lower carbohydrate, healthier fat. And there are many um, examples of dietitians that would do something quite similar, but then they get essentially threatened to be dismembered, like to have their membership taken mm-hmm. off of the, off them or to be um, no longer accredited under the DAA because they're not following the party line essentially. So some end up, yeah, changing their title completely to practice as a nutritionist. Um, and yeah, others I imagine certainly change careers, but it's really unfortunate that it has to be that way, especially with the evolution of the health industry and what we've seen over the last sort of even five to 10 years. It's just that the reality is with research Sometimes it can take 17 years for it to actually be accepted into company or government policy. And 
we don't have 17 years. Look at the health of Western countries. We have so many lifestyle diseases that could be avoided. We don't have 17 years. It's interesting you say that around the the people shifting in through their careers when their beliefs shift. It's like hearing of and knowing of doctors who get hand in their GP license to go into functional medicine when they realize that how limited they are in the prescription of medications as opposed to the prescription of health and wellness in functional medicine, for example. And then hearing that in the dietetic dietitian slash nutritionist space or functional medicine. I worked in high performance sport my whole career. I was an athlete and then a performance therapist and a high performance coach in the system, sports dietitians, amazing people, amazing results with the work that they do, but also limited and bound to these, these rules. And I actually had one of the dietitians say to me one day when I was asking her about gut health and the implications of some of the foods that they recommend. And she said, to be honest, Robbo, I'm embarrassed by some of the information I have to put on the website, like have a jam sandwich for energy and have this Mm -hmm. cereal that's, you know, she said, but this is who we're sponsored by. And this is what we have to put forward as well as part of our licensing. So it's kind of scary in that way. Yeah. I don't know how anyone still does it. Like it's similar in the, um, even in the gestational diabetes space, I'm doing a lot of sort of preconception and pregnancy work these days. And you hear what a gestational diabetes educator is asking this pregnant female to eat. And you think they can't believe that. They can't actually think that prescribing all those refined carbohydrates is a good idea for gestational diabetes, which is a condition of high blood sugar in pregnancy. Like maybe I would have forgiven it 10 years ago when we didn't have all the research that we've got around the role of sugar. And like you said, the microbiome, and we know that diabetes is largely preventable outside of type one, which is autoimmune, even though it can be prevented in some cases, but it's just mind blowing. And it it comes back to big food. So big food and equally big pharma. You know, I read a, um, a meme this week and I'll shorten it for context, but it essentially said if if your doctor prescribes you pills without discussing nutrition and lifestyle, then what you have is a drug pusher, not a doctor. Mm-hmm. And we, sh- well, you know, pharmaceutical intervention can save lives. So mm. I'm not anti-pharmaceuticals, but it should be the last resort, like the last intervention after we've had conversations around nutrition and exercise and stress and breath work and meditation and all the things that are accepted to create health and longevity. But they can't because they have to follow the standard of care. And the standard of care is always a drug. And that's tragic because those that don't know better end up in the polypharmacy, which is multiple drugs and multiple side effects and God knows how many pills to stay alive each day. And that's not quality of life. That's certainly not the way I want to go. (laughs) Mm, Absolutely. So the work that you do, do you find a lot of your clients are heavily prescribed with medications and and you help them to come off those through a natural approach. And I love what you just said there, looking at things naturally, not just in terms of the food we eat and the drinks that we drink, but also the breath work, the meditation, the mindfulness, those practices. Mm. Yeah, I sort of, I see two kinds of people, certainly those that are a bit more, um, I guess, in the space in terms of a personal interest and they've done some research and perhaps they've gone down that sort of Western medical route and gotten to the point where they've been offered 
a statin drug for high cholesterol or the oral contraceptive pill for acne or whatever it might be, and they think, hang on a minute, there needs to be another way. So that's when they would seek out more of a holistic approach. And certainly that's where I love to do testing and and look at the multiple um, factors that would influence how we would change a symptom, right, how we would create symptom resolution and optimal health. There's those kind of clients. And, yeah, the flip side is is those that have been prescribed one or many drugs to mask a symptom Mm. when the root cause has never been identified. So I essentially put my detective hat on and we work together to find the root cause and then we know what we need to do, right, and almost Mm. always there's a natural solution that it could, could at least be attempted that doesn't have a whole host of side effects, which we know that every pharmaceutical drug does yeah and it's so good the way you say that too because the symptom isn't the problem but Mm. the that's what the drugs approach is the symptom whereas what you do and from that natural and holistic approach is look at the root cause and find the problem and treat the problem so that the systems the, the symptoms don't persist yeah i think it's really like symptoms are like the light on the dashboard symptoms are really really helpful like without symptoms Mm. we would blow ourselves up right so symptoms are really really powerful so when you have your your fuel light or my ad blue lights on the moment on the moment in my car and it tells you to take action right so whenever we've got symptoms it's it should be that inspiration to take action but not to get rid of the symptom at all costs it's to work out why we're having that symptom and 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 go deeper essentially so absolutely i just think pharmaceuticals should be the last step in the journey for someone and it's really it's really powerful to to teach someone how to advocate for themselves and to create optimal health without relying on someone else because only you can do that for yourself. You're allowed a team and I think it's incredible to get support, but even being a nutritionist, and you would know this in your work, Brett, Brett, it's very horse to water. You know, I can tell my client until I'm blue in the place, blue in the face to do X, Y, and Z, but it's the person that needs to take the action and they need to want to make those changes long-term. Yeah, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, but you can also make them very bloody thirsty. <laughs> so I like that version. <laughs> it's a it's such a confusing world for people because there's so much information out there. But I'd, what I'd love to do now is just dive into a few different topics and and sort mm-hmm. of just approach and go through things that I find that come up a lot with the confusion for people. The first one is around fasting. I think from my perspective, it's quite simple for guys, and there's there's a lot of information out there that we can follow. Um, I practice it. I, I bring it in with my clients through support that I've had through functional medicine practitioners and guidelines and things like that. But I find that with women, um, the information is that there can be some side effects and that you need to be cautious and it could be around the cycle and you need to think of things like that. What's your experience of or knowledge of or advice for women who want to do intermittent fasting and or longer fasts? Yeah, it's a really good topic and one that does come up a lot. Now, firstly, we have to be really careful with understanding what we're actually talking about. So some definitions can be really helpful. And so if we just talk about fasting, well, that's a really normal thing to do because almost everyone should be fasting for about 12 hours overnight, right? Everyone tuning in can work out what time they finished dinner last night and what time they first 
ate or had like a milky kind of coffee this morning and you work it out, it's going to be 11 or 12 hours usually, you know, 8 p.m. till 8 a.m. or something like that. So that's really normal and everybody does that. So we can immediately dispel dispel the myth that all types of fasting are dangerous. It's actually really normal to allow our digestive system to rest. It puts us into a state of fat burning, which is essentially that normal metabolic state that humans thrive in before the food pyramid came along. But, yes, when we start to talk about longer than 12 hours, um, mouths can knock themselves out and essentially do what they want. The research is crystal clear there, and we have to acknowledge that the research that we have is in largely college age, so this is like American, but, you know, essentially young men that are quite athletic, right? So we certainly can't pick up that research and apply it to a female of menstrual cycle age or of reproductive age. So yes, we need to be really mindful of that. And that's where we want to have the state of optimal health first. So if the female has a whole host of symptoms and certainly has any menstrual cycle irregularity, So that might be just not having a regular cycle. It could be any degree of PMS. It could be ovulation pain. It could be all the way up to, you know, the absence of a menstrual cycle, like hypothalamic amenorrhea. And um, no, they're not going to be doing excessive fasting. That That would be creating the opposite environment to actually what we're trying to be working on to create optimal health. Then it's about the individual. It's also quite normal for some people to just not be hungry first thing, right? I don't force feed anyone. You certainly need to put guidelines in for some people depending on their primary goal, their current symptoms, their history with food, whether there is any disordered eating and so on and so forth. But equally, it's very normal to meet someone that would actually already be fasting for about 14 hours, And I personally think that 14.10, so a 14-hour fast with a 10-hour window can actually be a nice sweet spot for women of reproductive age. But then you have to look at context, right? So you need to look at their food choices, their appetite control, their blood sugar control, how the rest of the day pans out essentially, and equally acknowledging the grey, because the nutrition space seems to be all about extremes. It's all about the the black or the white, and it's just not. It's very grey. So if you wake up and you're hungry, just eat. Try to be intuitive and stop trying to fit, put yourself into a box and have these really extreme guidelines that only create problems. But equally know that if 14.10 feels good for you, that can actually be the perfect sweet spot. I don't often prescribe 16-8, which is obviously a 16-hour fast with an eight-hour window, but some women who are quite experienced, who have eaten real food, who have great blood sugar control, who have great hormonal control, so on and so forth, essentially they're in a state of optimal health. They might find that doing two days of 16-8 a week can suit them, but that's not going to apply to everyone. That's the exception rather than the norm. Do you do those practices at all? In the past, I have. In the past, I have definitely. Yeah, so I certainly don't prescribe it during pregnancy. pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm doing like lots of eating. <laughs> You're awake in the middle of the night finding yourself in the fridge. <laughs> no, not quite, but I'm eating at about 7.30, I think. So that's very unusual for me, but obviously a very different stage being um, now trimester three. But um, 
Yeah, in the past I have. And I've, I've certainly also done it too far and noticed my cycle go out to about 39 or 40 days. Mm-hmm. And our menstrual cycle is our monthly report card. It's a really interesting barometer. And I think we need to be taught and, and learn to pay more attention to it. And so once I noticed that, I was like, okay, rein it in. Let's, you know, call your jets essentially and, and do less of that, be less extreme. And it was a good lesson to learn. Like as a practitioner, I think a lot of what we, um, well, how we really relate to our clients is our personal experience. And so I do like to hack things and experiment and test, but you've got to be smart about it. So to then obviously listen to the symptoms or the signals that your body's giving you and and know when to take a step back. Yeah, brilliant. And I love having the discussion around that and understanding women's cycles and nutritionally the impact and fasting is, you know, part of that as well. Because for me, my vision, my goal, part of my purpose in our relationship is to be empathetic and connected and to understand women's cycles in that way. So not just from a coaching perspective, when I work with female athletes or female clients, but also as a connected, empathetic husband, if I understand that and understand why we have such different food choice requirements uh, at different periods of time, then it, then it helps me in, in that situation, obviously helps my gorgeous wife and our relationship. So for all the men listening, if you're kind of tuning out and thinking that doesn't, it's not relevant (laughs) then. And even in a workplace context, I guess, understanding that, you know, just having that understanding that we are very different physiologically between, you know, internally and everything has an impact in that way. One thing I do want to go back to is you said that, you know, it's pretty normal for people to have a 12 hour window. There's actually a lot of people listening who would be eating late at night, getting up first thing in the morning, putting food in their mouth. So I think it should be normal that we have a 12 hour window and there's choices we can make to ensure that. And then another thing, when you said, you know, if you're, if you're hungry in the morning, just eat, also want to challenge that too, because a lot of the stuff that I have learned around neurology and neuroscience and hormonally, that if we're sleep deprived, our leptin and ghrelin hormones are kind of out of whack, which is our hunger hormones. And I found this after the birth of my first son, when I was very sleep deprived and would find that I was just choosing poor choices and choosing very often and thinking that I was hungry, but then kind of understanding that actually I'm not hungry. I know I'm not hungry, but my hormones are kind of telling me or making me feel that way. So it, that's part of the, I think the confusion for people that comes into play when you, like you said, when you experiment and understand yourself better and also know the power of choice within uh, and also the, the implication or sorry, the impact that things like sleep deprivation or just poor sleep, habits and routines can have on us the following day as well. Yeah, I agree. I think it's good that you challenged that statement. I said it quite blase like, but I I guess for context, what I see is people who really want to do a 14 hour fast and they're so bloody hungry and they Mm. end up trying to wait another two hours and then they make poor choices and they get home at four o'clock and they inhale the pantry and the day goes <laughs> pear-shaped. So why bother adding one extra hour to your fast to create that end result? But, yeah, equally hunger is also a learned response, right? So if you always eat breakfast at 7.30 and you've just acknowledged that you're one of those people that's snacking till midnight, 
you're going to be hungry at 7.30 because your body's expecting food. It's like the Pavlov's dogs kind of argument, right? So, yeah, it's a work in progress and a lot of it is paying attention but understanding. You know, I've been doing um, home blood sugar measurements just to prove that I don't need to do an oral glucose tolerance test. But my point is, is, yeah, if I have a bad night with Grace, I have terrible blood sugar in the morning and I haven't changed what I've eaten. It's purely sleep deprivation and that hormonal impact. So I think absolutely it's really powerful to understand that it's multifactorial yeah, as humans absolutely. are. <laughs> and I knew that you would, uh, that it was just kind of a blase comment. It was more for the listeners to, to allow you to sure. dive into that too. A little bit of a shifting gear around protein. What's the effects of having too much protein in our diets? The main effect I actually see is when we take a deeper dive into the microbiome. So when I think what the accepted um, foundation is when we're talking about microbiome health is that fiber is king. So the only like community that will disagree with that are the carnivores, but other than that, everyone can agree that fiber is king, right? And I do a lot of like microbiome testing where I will see the biggest difference between someone who's come to me in that sort of more biohacking sense to just, you know, essentially get some data. They've been eating really well for many years, almost always, like I'm talking like 99.9% of the time, they have incredible biomes because they've been feeding their beneficial microbes, the right fuel and creating this diverse ecosystem. And then someone who follows a more Western diet, which is naturally pretty poor in terms of like our vegetables, usually quite high in protein. Like we just eat big protein meals in the West. They tend to have more, we'll say less beneficial microbes, but more of the protein degrading microbes naturally because they've been feeding their microbes protein, right? And if that happens in excess, the gut can be pro-inflammatory. So there's inflammation in the gut and we start to see a whole host of symptoms that could be purely digestive and related to, you know, more obvious symptoms that you'd fall under that, that banner of gut health. But, you know, knowing that we really appreciate the link between the gut and the brain via the vagus nerve and that all health starts in the gut, we can then obviously have inflammatory symptoms systemically that can come back to really foundational and quite basic food changes. But real food is actually really powerful. I just think we haven't probably acknowledged like nature as much because we're used to a magic pill or a quick fix society. Absolutely. What's the microbiome testing that you do? Is it fecal or organic acid tests? It is a stool test. Yeah. So it's all done in the privacy of the of the like the client's home. So we essentially collaborate with an external company and it's the testing company is Microba, although we use their practitioner arm and it's metagenomic sequencing. So it's where still testing has evolved to in more recent years. It's not just that culture method, which some people might be familiar with is a Petri dish where there's a medium and your poo goes on there and they see what grows. This is actually that next step with the technolo- technological advancements that we've had around since essentially um, the movement in the DNA space has accelerated significantly that we're looking at all the genes. So it's a huge, huge snapshot of what's living in your microbiome, which is like the large bowel is the one that we usually refer to, even though we've got multiple microbiomes in the body. 
My wife and I have both done that that exact test and working with a functional medicine practitioner. I think it's quite interesting. And in the same way that you said there, the protein um, degrading bacteria, is it, that you find mm. more of and then that causes inflammation. I have been known to be someone who, if I think it's healthy, I'll go all in and have learned through lessons that you can have too much of a good thing sometimes. Mm. For example, with kombucha and other healthy things and then overdoing it and they're not feeling great. But one thing was I did low carb, high fat years ago and kind of scared myself away from carbohydrates. And then just signs and symptoms that I was ignoring kind of came to fruition and realized, okay, this doesn't suit me at all. Uh, And then looking at what healthy carbs or start good starchy carbs I could reintroduce and then realizing how much I loved sweet potato and the nutritional benefits and things like that so then that became my staple and I would have it pretty much every day sometimes twice a day with lunch and dinner and then the the testing came back to show that that and um, the buckwheat and those kind of carbs I was just over the the number of uh, the bacteria that are affected or grown from that however that works they were in abundance like in really high numbers so it's like starch degrading microbes yeah 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 that must have been what it was so my practitioner was questioning me and said you know do you eat a lot of these kind of i said yeah i do actually because i try to avoid all the the shitty carbs and Mm. so i know that there's a few of those so i'm obviously i'm having too much of it you know with good healthy versions of organic sweet potato and organic buckwheat and preparing it right and things like that. But obviously we can have too much of it. And I guess in the same way, like you were saying with the proteins. Yeah. I think food diversity is king for a lot of us. We're very uh, routine like and habitual with how we shop and what food that we eat. And so, yes, the food that we eat feeds our microbes. So we, we're not going to be surprised if we're eating a lot of protein And we therefore see a lot of protein degrading microbes or a lot of starch and seeing a lot of starch degrading microbes. But it's it's even simpler to try and eat the rainbow. It's like a cliche nutritionist saying, but it's so true. Like we need lots of color. We need lots of variety. We're supposed to be having like 40 different species of plants a week. And that includes herbs and spices and different teas and vegetables and things like that as well. But like Almost no one does that because we're such creatures of habit and we're time poor and we've put food um, down the list of priorities. But we can actually make really small, simple changes to increase the diversity of our food, which will increase the diversity of our microbiome. How important is it for you to, sorry, for, for the listeners to get a microbiome test? I just think it's really powerful information. Like in the in the health space, I think what we're used to doing is guessing. There's a lot of guesswork and a lot of just buy this supplement or my friend's taking this, so I'll buy this. And it doesn't work. Like my my favorite saying is test, don't guess. So especially if you're symptomatic or you've had a really long history of antibiotic exposure, which we know has um, huge detrimental impacts on the biome. But it even goes back to, you know, what our mother's health was like when we were in the in the in tummy, you know, how we were born, whether we were breastfed or formula. There's lots of factors that we're faced in this day and age. It's called the disappearing microbiota hypothesis. 
And it's directly related to the significant increase in autoimmune conditions and lifestyle diseases that we have in this day and age. So I just think getting that information is so powerful to take the next step to either finally create symptom resolution or continue to optimize your health. You know, I didn't do it because I had symptoms. I did it because I wanted to know where I was at and what else I needed to do. And I just think that's like, what more, what more do you want? You want clarity to really optimize your health. And then for a lot of people, what actually happens is they finally learn that less is more. They don't need this kombucha and that supplement and this, and you know, like it actually can really simplify things too. And I often take people off lots of sups and, 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 and things, hacks that they're doing. More is not always more. Speaking of supplements, what's your take on that? Is there a way, what, is there certain supplements that we should all be taking if they're really high quality or if we are eating very nutritious foods consistently, uh, do we get enough from that? Or is it so individual that without the testing, you can't really answer that question because you'd just be guessing. So there's a few answers. So one, I think we do have to acknowledge that unfortunately we have not prioritized soil quality in the West or in the world, right? So even though I wish that if we ate a whole food diet, that was enough, it's, it's, often not, not always. Some people have incredible health and there's many factors, including genetics, but equally our soil is depleted. So therefore our food is depleted. So it's not as easy as saying, let's just eat magnesium rich foods and hope that we feel better. We sleep better. We get less muscle cramps or what have you, but it, you know, some people can just eat real food. So let's just put that aside. And then other people We'll need more than that, but there's really only one or two or three things that I would prescribe per se without doing blood tests. So certainly it depends on the person's dietary preference, but if they're vegan, they need to be on B12 full stop because <laughs> you can't get B12 from plants. Mm-hmm. Um, I think magnesium's a really good all rounder, especially because we know our soil is depleted. Most people are far too stressed, not sleeping enough. Many people have hormonal imbalances and magnesium can be really, really beneficial for many of those common symptoms. And then in Australia, we can't get wild-caught fish fresh. It's all farmed. So then we have that challenge around our omega-3, so our anti-inflammatory fats versus the balance of omega-6s. And, yes, I would love to be able to prescribe two to four pieces of wild-caught fish a week. And hopefully one day I will be able to, but fish oil can be really beneficial for things like hormonal balance, blood sugar control, exercise recovery, anyone that's working on their blood lipid profile and wanting to avoid that statin drug conversation, which will no doubt come up if their um, bloods are quote unquote out of reference range. And then, you know, the good old vitamin C if we're feeling a bit run down and there's plenty of research around the role of vitamin C in COVID-19. And so there's really three things, I think, or four things if we're looking at a vegan um, nutrition template as well. But um, otherwise I'd be doing tests. I'd love to know where, you know, personally my levels were at so I could change what food I'm doing first rather than always looking at a supplement. So, you know, I eat meat, but if I've got low B12, I can look at increasing what I'm um, consuming or looking at my dietary absorption by adding in more bone broth or, you know, there's lots of things that we would start with that is often a 
nutrition and or lifestyle strategy, it's not always that supplements are going to be prescribed, but at least we've got that clear information. And then we can retest. We can do an intervention for eight weeks or 12 weeks or six months. And then we can retest to make sure it's working and adjust accordingly. I think it's just a smart way to look after ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like the analogy of anything really. You, you think electronics in your home, your your vehicle, everything like that, it needs maintenance, it needs service, it needs checking in and um, doing things accordingly. And there's no, I, I believe that your health is your wealth. So people who don't prioritize it in that way, uh, it's it's impacting every area of our life. So, I mean, that whole supplement discussion could keep going too, because I imagine <laughs> then you've got the the brands and the quality. That's something that people need to be aware of. So, when you do prescribe it, is there only certain brands that you will use? Yeah, as a general rule, I think in Australia, a lot of the raw ingredients come from the same place but the cheaper brands have all the unnecessary fillers and additives in there. And that's why they're on sale and you can get, you know, something for eight ninety five at Coles or whatever. So, you know, it, it is health is your wealth. And it's also the money that you spend is the money that you won't spend on medication and surgeries and doctor's appointments when you're older. Right. So you just have to shift how you view the cost of supplements, right? It's an investment in your health. And so, yeah, most often I'll be choosing what we could consider a practitioner-only brand. There are some good vitamin Cs that you can grab on the shelf, like Melrose Health really pride themselves on quality and avoidance of synthetic fillers, and they're at Chem Warehouse. And But, you know, especially when it comes to things like fish oil, you, you want to be really choosy because, it's an omega-3. It's an unstable fat. That's why we don't fry with it because we denature it. So we don't at the same time want fish oil that's not enteric coated or in a really dark glass jar or bottle in the fridge. Otherwise, it's no longer an omega-3. It'll be pro-inflammatory and creating the opposite result. So you never want to spend twelve ninety five on 500 caps of fish oil. Like, don't bother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, Not to mention the-, the ethical and sustainable side of it when we look at the environment as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we get the Metagenics and Thorn mm. brands mostly with a lot of our supplements and mm. hell of a lot more expensive, but it, like it's an investment. I don't see it as, oh my God, that's expensive, way more expensive than anything else. I don't even compare it. I just know that it's the best and that's what our body needs. <laughs> mm. Yeah. What about uh, calcium from dairy? And I bring this up because we're living in Sweden at the moment and they consume a hell of a lot of dairy through cheeses and milks. And it's often very good quality because they have really high standards over here and they have a lot of grass through the warmer months and they create, they just grow and grow and grow and store a lot of hay. So the cows eat grass all year round most in most of the places. But Sweden is also a place that has very high amounts of osteoporosis per capita, one of the highest in the world, but they're also one of the highest dairy consumers in the world. And I say this not just because I'm living here, but that's just an example. But a lot of people listening would have the belief that you have to have high amounts of dairy to get the right amount of calcium in your body. What is, what's your thoughts and and knowledge around that? And for this Sweden example, is it, do you need more vitamin D for example, to help the uptake and the absorption of, of calcium? And maybe is that why their numbers are low? Yeah, I think it's going to be multifactorial. You can't just look at the, a packet of milk, a jug of milk or a container of yogurt 
<clears throat> excuse me, and read the milligrams of calcium and compare it to a plant-based food and, you know, decide that that's higher in calcium so that must be better because we've got to be able to absorb it, right? So there's that sort of that concept of bioavailability <clears throat> that concept of bioavailability. And that's one of the challenges with dairy is that, yes, there are other cofactors that are required for it to be absorbed. And then um, many of us lack the digestive capacity and the right enzymes to break down lactose, which is you know, definitely more in, in, say, the milks, which is a higher in lactose and less in our, um, our cheddar yellow cheeses, which are lower in lactose. But equally, there's a real issue between, um, you know, reading the number of milligrams of calcium and being able to absorb that much. Yeah, if it was that simple, we wouldn't see osteoporosis, right, because we would have strong bones. And so that's where it's important to acknowledge that you can actually exist on a dairy-free diet and obtain adequate calcium, but you need to make sure you know where your calcium's coming from. And it's, you know, looking at your dark leafy greens, I think um, bones in fish, sesame seeds or tahini, almonds, oranges, like there are a lot of foods that are really high in calcium, but you're not going to be able to just add up the milligrams and do a one-to-one because it is apples to oranges or milk to oranges. But, you know, that's something that I think, is multifactorial because bones, bone density depends on, especially in females, our estrogen levels. And then things like strength training we know is like number one for strong bones. And a lot of the time, you know, if it's, I don't know the data in Sweden, but we'd need to look at the difference between men and women and what age they are, because then there's that sort of perimenopause, menopausal conversation. And we're just, we're so reactive with that. Like, women basically get to 70, they've gone well through menopause and someone tells them to do a bone density test and they've got osteoporosis. Well, it's too late. We should be testing our women when they're perimenopause and we know that their symptoms are due to low estrogen. We can get them to do a bone density test and create a plan, which will involve strength training, whether you like it or not, to avoid all of that. We need to be proactive about our health. And that was a little bit of a tangent, but it's what I see in clinic all the time. So I'm always getting my females to request that their doctor refers them to radiology for that bone density because we can avoid osteopenia and osteoporosis largely. Brilliant. It was a tangent, but it's so, so necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, There's so many other things that I would love to dive into, but what I'd like to do now is just shift gears for a little bit just for the last few minutes. And this could honestly be a whole podcast on its own or a whole series on its own but you're also very vocal about this on your Instagram. So if anyone wants to go further with it with you, they can uh, jump on and follow you and I highly recommend they do regardless. But I want to talk about the, uh, the topic of you're very courageously speaking out about um, the COVID vaccination. So can you just give us a brief kind of idea of why it's important to you to be a voice in this space and what it is that people need to be aware of uh, in, in regards to their choices, whether they choose to take the vaccination or whether they choose not to. And I just want to say before you answer that, that I have zero judgment of anyone's choices. Their mm. choices don't affect my choices and I have zero judgment of it. But what I always love is when people can make a choice when they are open-minded and see things from many different perspectives and different sides of the equation. Yes. I think that's 
where it should be, right? It should be about having choice. But it's it's kind of like at the moment that the main argument is that we should be taking the vaccine for the greater good. So, you know, before you said my choices don't affect anyone, well, most people would disagree with that because the argument is we should be doing it to, like we should be having the vaccine to protect the vulnerable and to create herd immunity and to basically stop this pandemic. But the problem I have is that none of these arguments are backed by the research at the moment. So the first thing that I think we need to understand is that the clinical trials aren't completed. So we only have a vaccine being administered in countries like Australia because of emergency use authorization. So these vaccines actually are not even approved. They're not approved by the FDA, which the which is the Food and Drug Administration in the US. They're only approved because we're currently in a state of a pandemic and there's lockdowns in, in certain parts of the world. Now, never before... <laughs> In any drug trial or clinical trial, would we be okay with the fact that the clinical trial is still going? Because clearly we don't have all the evidence. But in Australia, most people are being offered the AstraZeneca vaccine now and the clinical trial goes until Feb 2023. And it's currently the year 2021. So I have a big problem when we see statements being published online and in government documents that say, this is a safe and effective vaccine. Like that is not a truthful statement because we actually don't have all the data. So if we actually look at the clinical trials, they're not finished. So we don't have all the safety data. So how can we be so so confident that they're safe? And that's my issue because it's like you're not allowed to say that without being called an anti-vaxxer, which I think is a terribly poor argument that essentially shuts down a conversation where we should be open to having a really intelligent discussion about all the variables. You know, my biggest problem is because there has been a bit of a question mark around fertility and pregnancy and breastfeeding. And obviously currently being pregnant, it's very much my reality. So I've been quite vocal about that because I keep seeing government organisations like the Australian Breastfeeding Foundation and then these, you know, PDF guidelines for, for pregnancy and and breastfeeding, again, saying it's a safe and effective vaccine. But it's not been tested around fertility. That wasn't one of the trial endpoints. It's not been tested on pregnant women and it hasn't been tested in breastfeeding. So, again, how do we know it's safe? So I'm not taking it until there is safety data in pregnancy and breastfeeding because that's certainly going to be my reality for the next few years, if not longer, if I have more children. And I just think it preys on the on the vulnerable or those that don't yet do their own research because all they see is the Australian Breastfeeding Association or the government saying it's safe and effective and there's not enough of a discussion of risk or potential risk. It's like any pharmaceutical. When was the last time your doctor sat you down and pulled out the leaflet and spoke to you about the potential side effects and the risks? Like that should be what's happening, but it's not. And so I think people are naively trusting and I don't want to live to regret a decision until I have clinical data to support my decision. So that's why I've chosen to wait and I've chosen others to, you know, to educate others to perhaps think about that there's two sides to the story and that if the clinical trials are still going, then we don't have all the evidence. Do you, as a mother have you had to navigate any fears and process anything around 
being a voice in this space and uh, potentially that your children having judgment placed upon them from parents who disagree or families who disagree or anything like that. Is that something internally that you've also had to process? Yes. Well, my mother-in-law is a vaccination nurse. And so we have conversations daily about this because she's heavily involved in the rollout here in Tasmania. And I actually love talking to her about it. I find it extremely fascinating and um, like to think I have quite an open mind. You know, she's have, she's up to her second, um, dose of AstraZeneca. I was talking to my grandmother on the weekend about her appointment. And so, you know, I equally don't judge them. They have, I hope, looked at the pros and cons, um, looked at the risks and made the best decision for them. It's just the problem for a lot of people. Like a, a month ago, I spoke to my grandmother and she didn't want to do it, but felt she had to because she wanted to visit her friend's at the aged care home. And I just think that is, that's making it mandatory. No matter what Scott Morrison says about quote unquote mandatory as possible, when you're forced into a corner to either not see your loved ones or get the vaccine, well, many people don't have a choice. And that is, is what's hard, but yeah, there's always judgment. Like I have copped a lot online, not so much this year, but definitely last year. But like, I'm not new to criticism. You know, I've been busting myths since 2011. So <laughs> I've got pretty thick skin these days. But yeah, unfortunately, I think vaccinations, it's like a religion. So often when someone, let's say it was back when they were vaccinating their children, they form the decision that they believe all vaccines are safe it's pretty unlikely they're going to change their mind. So if someone is challenging that narrative, it can, they can get quite defensive. I've heard conversations about families busting up and friendships breaking down and, you know, like I don't think it needs to be that way. I think we can be really open to freedom of choice and um, a difference of opinion, especially when there's been a good assessment of, of risk. Yeah, beautifully said. And I know that people listening will be, I know people who think it's a no-brainer to get it. Uh, hmm. like what you alluded to. And I know people who think it's a no-brainer not to get it. And so that's why I say I have zero judgment. And and I I thank you for bringing shining light on some dark areas in this space and and just giving people an opportunity to to look at things a bit differently. And uh, yeah, I, I can understand your, your thick skin if you've been busting myths since 2011 <laughs> from that open-minded space to share the information. I think what's been really powerful is it has allowed people to actually do their own research. And if I've inspired that, then I'm happy because for so long, we've only listened to one side of the conversation, which is essentially the pharmaceutical industry because they're the major sponsors of the mainstream media these days. And so if one person suddenly starts to question that narrative and look at the clinical data instead of what they've been told, that's incredible because we've got to advocate for ourselves and we do need to do our own research. And yeah, absolutely. And like I said, if people want to to see more about that, you do share a lot of information from, you know, you're sharing data that isn't being shared in, in alignment with that. So it's not just your opinion, you are looking at the data that isn't necessarily being shared so much and you're resharing that to to give people that information. So definitely anyone listening, follow Steph to, to get that perspective on it as well. Very mindful of your time and understand that you've probably been in your third trimester, you might be ready for another snack by now from <laughs> no, I can last an hour but thanks for thinking of me <laughs> uh, we're 
going to jump on to Instagram live for a really quick bonus question. So everyone listening, if uh, obviously you won't be listening to this live, if you missed it live, then you can jump onto my Instagram TV and I'll also tag Steph who is at the natural, the natural nutritionist and that will all be in the show notes. But before we do, uh, where can the listeners learn more about you and how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Yeah. So as you said, Instagram under the natural nutritionist, and that's also .com.au, which is my, my online home. So definitely come and connect over on those usual platforms. Um, yeah, I think that's the best thing that we can do. We can um, stay in touch, help each other, create optimal health. And, and certainly if you need my support to direct you to the research, I would love to. You can jump into my DM and I'll share with you what I have been sharing. There are about nine or 10 COVID highlights on my Instagram page though. So you've probably got a lot to look at if you're just coming um, over to my page now, but look forward to seeing you over there. <laughs> And there's also that post that we talked about at the start of uh, toddlers. <laughs> and the question is, what the fuck? <laughs> I love it. Steph, you're a legend. You're a brave, passionate leader whose knowledge and skills are literally changing and saving people's lives through the nutritional work that you do and uh, helping them with their choices and to improve their health and, and optimize their health. Keep shining your natural and impactful light to the world, my girl. Thank you so much. It was great to chat. Boom. Thank you. There you go. Steph Lowe giving us an abundance of awareness and knowledge in so many areas of our health and well-being. Make sure you follow Steph on Instagram at The Natural Nutritionist or go to her website for all of her free resources and delicious and nutritious recipes and also to explore working with her or her team. That's thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. If you missed the Instagram live, you can find it on my Instagram TV at brettrobbo1. And just a hint that the question is related to nutrition and the behavior and mental health of children. As I said in the intro, if you're keen to hear more from other natural nutrition and functional medicine experts, please let me know and I'll happily link them more frequently into the flow of this podcast. Keep thriving, legends. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.